Hello, and welcome back to the Energy Environment Economy podcast produced by EBC, the Environmental Business Council of New England. I'm Anne Geisinger, Executive Director at EBC and your host for this episode. Here at Energy Environment Economy, we talk about the business of the environment, the energy and environmental industries are in a really exciting and interesting time. And this podcast is here to explore all the different angles and corners of the industry. So today I'm here with Dr. Michael Howland. He is the Esther and Harold E. Edgerton Assistant Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT. How is it going? It's going well. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Would you like to go with Mike for the episode, Dr. Howland? What works for yeah. you? Okay. <laughs> the title's a little long, so Mike works best, actually. Yeah. And I just learned that Harold E. Edgerton actually did some really cool stuff at MIT. That's uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. He was one of the pioneers in in slow motion videos and and pioneered uh, scientific visualization. So if you ever have a chance to visit MIT, there's a a portion of campus that's really dedicated to his work with amazing visualization. So definitely recommend checking it out. Oh, that's really cool. Do they have like video on a TV? Yeah, or they have some yeah. videos and posters, yeah. some yeah, really remarkable visualizations. It's yeah, fantastic. Great. So based on your bio, your work is focused at the intersection of many things. So fluid mechanics, weather and climate modeling, uh, uncertainty quantification, optimization, control. And a lot of that is really based on renewable energy and the renewable energy systems and how to work with them. Um, but where did you get interested in engineering just in the outset? What was the thing that sparked your interest? Yeah, I think you phrased it really well. I think the overall umbrella theme of our research is really how how do we think about decarbonization of energy systems at scale? And, and the primary focus for our group is really to focus on how we're going to uh, reduce the amount of greenhouse gases associated with energy generation specifically. And we'll do that in large part with increasing our renewable energy generation through wind and solar and, and other similar resources. And so that was actually the context with which I, I entered the space. So growing up, uh, pretty early on, actually, sometime around late middle school, early high school, I essentially decided, okay, climate change is the problem that I'm going to focus on. Uh, sort of how kids decide, oh, I want to be a, a firefighter <laughs> yeah. and so on. I decided, right. okay, I'm going to be an engineer focused on climate change. And I was, I was even quite specific in the sense that, um, of course, like climate science is a critically important field, but I decided my niche was going to be on, on climate solutions. How are we going to mitigate climate change, recognizing that the science in some sense has told us, yes, it's happening. So what are we actually going to do about it as, as a society? And so essentially by, by early high school, I had already decided, okay, the plan is, is to somehow work on renewable energy to mitigate climate change. So, so how can we actually manifest that goal? And so in that context, I, I also decided research was really important uh, for me to do so I can gain an expertise and a more detailed understanding of, of how the systems work. And so that's how I ended up at, at Johns Hopkins University for my undergraduate, which is a university that actually prides itself specifically on getting undergraduates involved in academic research, where, uh, of course, there's opportunities at, at many universities to do that, but it's easier to get lost in the shuffle at, at some other places where at Hopkins, they really emphasize that. And so there at Hopkins, I was really uh, able to uh, work with some fantastic mentors uh, who I, I still rely on for advice uh, to this day. Uh, ben Hobbs at Johns Hopkins, uh, yeah, Charles Menavu, uh, Denise Game, and, and others who uh, who have really fundamentally shaped my career along with the students and postdocs I was working with. 
Tony Martinez, Julian Bustet, et cetera. So, so that was really critical for me already at the undergraduate level to get that exposure. And at that point, I was fully set, okay, really <laughs> working on fluid mechanics, environmental fluid mechanics as it relates, especially to renewable energy systems was, was the path. I am super impressed about how focused you were. I think when I was in middle school, well, both my parents are engineers, so they very much wanted me to be an engineer. But I don't know that I would have put together, I want to work on climate and engineering is a path where I can do that. I think that yeah. from, from just knowing engineers and living under the roof of engineers, a lot of that engineering focus is like, oh, I'm going to build bridges. I'm going to do Completely agree. You know, yeah. other things with it. But but it's awesome that you thought about it at such a young age. Like I can combine engineering with climate work and make stuff happen. That's that's amazing. Yeah. And I think, you know, as always, it's a lot of luck and sort of who and what you're exposed to at, at that age. So, of course, you know, uh, it's critically important. My parents were really the, the guiding uh, light in that regard in terms of showing me academic pathways and and exposing me to to different ideas of how to impact the world. So so that's really where it principally came from. But I completely agree about your perspective in engineering. And I'm hoping that's part of what we we try to do here at MIT is we we're trying to change that narrative a little bit because yeah, sure. uh, I completely agree when I when I actually first showed up for my my freshman seminar at Johns Hopkins, again, a fantastic education. So zero criticism, but we show up and, and the professor is going around, okay, what's everyone interested in? Why why do you want to become an engineer? Essentially asking the same question you asked me just now. And, you know, oh, who cares about vehicles and, uh, uh, you know, combustion engines and sort of half the class raise their hands. Who cares about airplanes and aerospace applications? So like a quarter of the class raise their hands. And then the professor actually noticed, okay, I didn't raise my hand for any of these options that he, he listed. Yeah. I was like, well, you never mentioned energy generation, you never mentioned renewable energy. And he's like, oh, yeah, that's that's a good point, actually. Yeah, we didn't think about that. So I'm hoping we can change that narrative because yeah, the skills you can gain in in an engineering undergraduate and graduate education are, are critically important for the decarbonization uh, mission. Certainly something that EBC wants to highlight as well. I mean, a lot of what we're focusing on as part of our outreach efforts is getting students to understand all the different opportunities that you can have in this industry, it's not just wetlands permitting, but there's so much more you can do. And it's all environmental related. You don't have to work for the Sierra Club to feel like you're improving the environment. And so it's, it's awesome to hear that you're, <laughs> you started from an early age and had that great perspective. Yeah. And, and I, I completely agree with what you said. And, and I, of course, I want to also generalize this, that when it comes to making impact in the environment and climate, we don't just need engineers. You know, Of course, it's all hands on deck approach. We need as many engineers to work on these problems as possible. We don't have nearly enough. And that's that's part of the reason why I wanted to join a place like MIT so we can get more and, and convince people to work on these problems. We need every single essentially uh, skill set that's important and exists in human society is critically important to, to mitigate climate change. It really is a, an issue that, that touches on almost every aspect of human society. Absolutely. Totally agree with you. So if we move on to sort of your your research, you have some really interesting stuff going on and your presentation at the Offshore Wind Conference is absolutely why I invited you to the podcast because I was just sort of amazed by 
this simple idea of um, yaw, which I had never heard of before, but changing very simple things related to an offshore wind array and generating more energy from it. So can you talk a little bit about some of your research themes and what has come out of some of that? I know that from your MIT website, you're talking about complex system interactions and you're doing a lot of simulations and then leveraging a lot of your models to actually bring it out into the field. Yeah, exactly. So at the highest possible level uh, of, of describing it, our lab is really interested in, again, decarbonization. And the primary way we're interested in this problem is that as we decarbonize, uh, we're doing really two things. One is we are replacing traditional generation with renewable energy generation, which is inherently more dependent on weather and climate variations or broadly environmental variations. And we're also electrifying energy demand. And uh, so we're also changing the typical way that we've consumed energy compared to the past, which has been more distributed in the past, right? You have uh, internal combustion engines using fossil fuels, and they're not electrified. And you have oftentimes, especially in New England, natural gas and other fossil fuels heating your home. And we're, we're really undergoing a paradigm shift where now we're changing renewable energy generation uh, or changing generation to be renewable. And we're also electrifying uh, many aspects of demand. So we're both increasing electricity demand and changing how that depends on the environmental system. So our lab is really interested in these aspects of how our systems, both of energy and the environment, become more and more coupled in time. And we try to develop approaches that we can understand that behavior, see what's happening, but also develop uh, models for this behavior that can then enable improved decision making so that we can be as efficient as cost effective and as targeted in our greenhouse gas reductions as possible as we make decisions in, in the energy space. And, and exactly as you mentioned, with wind energy, wind energy is a great example of this because the power and energy production associated with wind energy is inherently dependent on wind patterns in the environment. So our ability to predict and optimize wind energy systems inherently depends on our ability to predict and model flow physics of Earth's atmosphere. And that's why we we have a big focus in that area. Okay. And have you, so I know that you talked a little bit at the conference about, um, you know, the direction that the turbine is facing and how it, it plays into the efficiency across the whole uh, installation of a bunch of turbines. Have you looked at sort of what other current installations as, as Europe has done a lot of it already, what have you learned from past and how do you think you're going to be able to affect future installations, especially because yeah. right now we're on the cusp of installing a ton of energy or wind energy here in New England. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so so exactly for the reasons you've mentioned, it's critically important that we develop a good sense of uh, this of, of wind energy in the context of the atmosphere and we do it as fast as possible. So this is sort of why our group is working so hard and we're we're really working quite quickly because we're starting to deploy at, at a substantial scale and we want to make sure that we do this in the best way possible. And I should have those graduate saying, students like notes to the grindstone. <laughs> <laughs> and not just graduate, you know, me, yeah. me as well. So it's all of yeah. us, yeah, working together. Exactly. And but yeah, I should I should note, of course, that uh wind energy has had a remarkable trend over the past uh, decade or so, a, a, a precipitous drop in the cost of energy, normally characterized through a metric called the levelized cost of energy. It's dropped remarkably over time, such that oftentimes wind uh, generation, especially onshore, 
is the cheapest form of electricity generation in that in that region. And, and in certain locations, it's the cheapest form of electricity generation that that we've seen in, in modern history. And so so that's really exciting, but there's always more to do. So we want to continue to drive uh, down the cost of energy. We want to continue to increase efficiency so that we can enable this wide-scale deployment in as fast of a way as possible, as, as exactly you're describing. So when it comes to what you've mentioned with wind farm control, let me back up and say that uh, the historical way that uh, wind farms have been developed is that they design a wind farm such that uh, the hope is that the individual wind turbines will interact in uh, as small of a way as possible. So when you place individual wind turbines within a wind farm, essentially each turbine extracts some amount of the kinetic energy associated with the flow in the atmosphere to produce electrical power. Right. And if you just understand this in a conservation of energy argument, so energy is conserved in the universe, then because we're producing electrical power at each turbine, the kinetic energy available in the wind immediately downwind of that turbine is less than it was coming into that, that first turbine in the farm. And so uh, uh, really, when we put the wind turbines within a wind farm, we're doing this uh, to achieve benefits of, of economy of scale, right? So we want to reduce how many places we have to connect to the wider energy grid. Uh, we want to save costs on, on purchasing land if it's onshore. We have constraints in an offshore environment from the lease areas that are dictated by the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, et cetera. So for all these reasons, we put wind turbines in, in close proximity. But then because of this wake effect that I just described, these wind turbines are essentially stealing energy from one another when we place them in the farm. So from a fluid mechanics standpoint, it's really not ideal. We, we wouldn't want these turbines to be next to each other purely from a efficiency standpoint of energy production, but from an efficiency of uh, a monetary function, so driving down the cost of energy, it is a good decision. So how far that- away would they have to be to not impact each other in, if you didn't have to worry about anything else? Yeah, it really depends on the conditions in the atmosphere. So sure. it really depends on essentially how much turbulence there is in the atmosphere, how much variation is there about the mean wind speed, the same kind of turbulence that you feel when you fly in an airplane. Uh, it actually acts to mix out these kinetic energy deficit regions in the atmosphere. And so if the turbulence is relatively high in the atmosphere, if the wind is really fluctuating, that will actually mix out these, these wake regions faster than if the, the wind is, is more okay. steady in time. But the general rule of thumb from actually from colleagues, uh, principally at Johns Hopkins University, who first were studying that exact question that you've mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, found that uh, spacing beyond 10 rotor diameters, so 10 multiples of the uh, rotor diameter of the wind turbine will lead to fairly small wake interactions in power production. The one thing that also happens is that in the wake region, the turbulence is also elevated. So the turbines actually elevate the turbulence compared to the atmospheric wind. And that has implications for the fatigue of wind turbines. So turbines operating in wake regions generally have higher loads compared to turbines operating in free stream. And it turns out that that effect actually persists for longer, normally about 15 rotor diameters. And if you take a typical wind turbine size that exists now onshore around 100 meters and offshore now more like 200 meters, you can start to see that these numbers get quite big, right? So 
uh, 10 rotor diameters with 200 meter rotor diameter is two kilometers that you have to space the turbines apart. And that's huge. Like, as you said, you've got to think about the monetary implications of that, the lease areas, all that stuff, how much energy you're trying to generate. So obviously we're not going to be doing 2K, right? I don't think. Yeah, exactly. And so it really becomes a, a, an optimization problem. You really have to ask, what are the costs and constraints associated with spacing the turbines as far as possible apart? from an energy standpoint uh, to maximize that, but then you have an associated cost penalty from spacing them further apart. And so in practice, onshore at least, turbines are typically spaced somewhere between uh, six and 10 rotor diameters uh, onshore. And so that means generally for for wind farms that exist, we have some degree of of wake interactions that are non-trivial. Now, how how much the wake interactions uh, reduce the energy production of that farm that really is site-specific. It depends on the specific wind farm design and the characteristics of the meteorological conditions at that site. And so what you're trying to do is through placement uh, or through the direction of the rotors, which way they're facing, minimizing some of that wake behind them so that the turbine behind, directly behind, can utilize more of the wind. Yeah, exactly. So exactly as contextualized by the discussion we we just had, it's challenging to completely eliminate wake interactions purely from farm design because you're not optimizing when you're designing a farm for maximum energy production necessarily. You're, you have a lot of other things that come into that decision-making process. And so given that wake interactions do generally exist at farms, we really want to think about how can we minimize them uh, uh, given the operation of, of the turbines. And uh, the overwhelming majority of wind turbines in the world are controlled as if they're completely isolated. So each individual turbine is controlled to try and maximize only its own power production as if it was not within a wind farm. But it, again, it always is operating within this wind farm context where it's essentially stealing energy from, from one another. And so our lab group and, and others in the community have been interested in asking, what if we actually change the operation paradigm? And we ask, what if you try to maximize the power and energy production of the total wind farm rather than just controlling the turbines individually? And the starting point for our investigation of this is to use only the existing mechanisms for control that the turbines have already. Because in principle, you could add additional hardware and alleviate these wake interactions even more, but then you have to start adding hardware to each turbine that the cost really can go up quickly. And so if the starting point is to drive down the cost of energy associated with a wind farm that already exists by reducing these wake interactions, then we should start by using the the control strategies we already have. And those are principally the yaw that you've mentioned, which is if you're taking a top view of the turbine, it's how it's oriented with respect to the wind. So what is the misalignment between the turbine's rotor and the incident wind direction? And then we also have two other ways of controlling the turbine, and that's the blade pitch. So each individual blade can rotate on its central axis, and that changes the pitch angle, which is important for the aerodynamics of the blades. And then the third control strategy we have is to change the torque from the generator. And so you can think about that somewhat similar to changing gears on a bicycle. And so those are our, yeah. really our three control strategies that we have. And, and all of those are something that is permanently, when you install it, it is the way it is and it never changes or? They all change dynamically in time, actually. Okay. So yeah, each individual turbine is constantly adjusting its yaw, pitch, and generator torque to try and maximize its individual power production in time. And so this individual greedy maximization strategy 
typically entails turning the yaw of the turbine such that it's directly perpendicular to the incident wind direction in the atmosphere. And the winds in the atmosphere actually change constantly. So if you go outside one day and the next day, you may notice the wind direction is not exactly the same. That actually happens not just in a, a diurnal cycle, so from day to day, but it also varies on smaller timescales, even minute by minute and smaller timescales like, uh, than that. So uh, turbines have a control system on board such that they're constantly turning to face the incoming wind, changing their pitch to be optimal, and likewise with their generator torque. And so uh, the primary perspective of our work in this domain is to say, well, what if we actually use those three control strategies that the turbines already dynamically use? They already have them on board every turbine, and they're controlled remotely, which is an important point as well. You don't necessarily have to send somebody up to the top of the tower and, and climb the ladder every time to change something. You can change simply by a software change, and we should ask instead of what is the control strategy that maximizes individual turbine power, what is the control strategy that maximizes farm power? So is it end up being a big software update, basically? It's reconfiguring all the different in-the-moment calculations that this program is doing to uh, think about the whole system versus just the individual turbine. Yeah, I think that's the easiest way to think about it. Yeah, it's, okay. it's primarily a big software update. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's just crazy that um, I can't imagine the amount of time it's taken to develop a huge turbine that can in the moment change its yaw, change the the blades and everything with all that technology. That's crazy because I guess I had thought that it was all kind of static. And so once it was installed, it's kind of there and because they're so huge. It's amazing to me. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> and that's actually the remarkable thing about, about wind energy, why they're such remarkable machines is that they're the largest rotational devices that humans have ever built in the existence of our societies. Oh, I've never so, thought of it that way. <laughs> yeah, they are remarkably large machines. So the, the newest offshore wind turbines have rotor diameters more than 200 meters. So uh, more than the length of two American football fields in their rotor diameter. And they're rotating quite quickly. Those blades are, are moving fast. Uh, so they can go easily 80 up to 100 meters per second at the blade tip. So they're moving quite quick and uh, they're constantly reacting to the winds. And so really the primary exercise uh, in terms of developing a collective control strategy, like we've been discussing, where we're maximizing farm power is to ask what should be the control strategy for the farm? Given the context of the complexity of flows in the atmosphere, turbulence, and the individual control mechanisms of each turbine. And so that's really where our lab's focus is, is asking how can we model all of this complex physics into one approach, which then will allow us to predict what is the best control strategy for that wind farm in time. So then the question becomes, how do you take this research that you've done, which seems to me has some real concrete outcomes that you can really, you could really send to these offshore wind developers and say, this is a new thing that you should be doing. Is that happening? Are they getting this information? Are they using your research? Are they going to consider all these changes to their software? I think there's starting to be a lot of momentum in, in industry to, to use these approaches that have been developed by, by our lab group and others in the community who are working on these, these questions together. And so actually just this week, the primary energy, uh, renewable energy uh, consulting uh, firm for uh, wind energy, DNV, they just announced a joint industry project, will actually, which actually takes a lot of these offshore developers that you've mentioned. Uh, there's press release online that you can look up uh, with the specific companies involved. And they're going to uh, combine their uh, resources together, pool their resources, and investigate wind farm control 
in a, in a broader industry context. So I think uh, finally, there's really some promising trends to take the research that's come out of academic setting and from national labs and start to deploy it at wider scale. That's great because you want to be able to actually translate this and really it would, it sounds like it would directly impact their bottom line, which is in theory what they're focused on. So yeah. And, and the primary, again, the primary focus has to be developing improved models. We need to continue to improve the way that we can predict the flow physics of the atmosphere and of the wind farm operation. So we need to continue to innovate and have further research funding because it's not a solved problem. The models we've been developing are uh, showing promise, but there's a lot of gaps still in terms of physics we don't quite understand that we need to continue to study. And then also we have uh, substantial gaps in uh, demonstrating the technology. Uh, And uh, so we can do controlled experiments to the best of our abilities in an academic setting and study these effects. But the primary challenge associated with uh, deploying the technology is to show compared to standard control that your methodology is increasing energy production significantly because when you change the control strategy, you'll never have that same period of time where you've changed the control strategy in the standard control strategy to directly compare. And so uh, this requires really detailed statistical methods given the complexities of atmospheric flow to to parse these details. It's really cool. Are there other renewable energy installations that you focus on beyond offshore wind? It's a good question. So um, more recently, our lab group has has broadened uh, our questions to think about how uh, environmental systems and energy systems are, are coupled more broadly. And so one thing we're, we're really interested in is that as we mitigate climate change with renewable energy, but uh, as the climate is already starting to change, how do these actually two challenges or uh, uh, changes sort of work in tandem? And one particular thing that we're, we're interested in is understanding how weather and climate variations associated with climate change will manifest to changes in power and energy production associated with wind and solar, especially. Uh, and that will have different spatiotemporal effects. So different times will be affected differently and different regions will be affected than others. And we want to understand how that will impact our, our decarbonization strategies broadly, because we want to design systems that are maximally resilient to this. So you can think about this as uh, an exercise in trying to reduce our vulnerability in an energy system to uh, uh, circumstances like the winter storm in Texas, where the natural gas infrastructure failed and resulted in in substantial uh, pain and suffering for uh, the energy users in Texas. And this is something that with renewable energy, we have the potential to design a more resilient system that can be more robust to these kinds of extreme events but we need to appropriately model all of this behavior so that we can design that best system. So we're really interested in in that pathway as well. That's fascinating and really applicable because as you mentioned, every region's going to have their own their own struggle with what's going to happen, more rainfall, less rainfall, more windstorms, less wind, you know, it's it's all going to matter. Exactly. And there's all these things being thought of, well, let's just throw solar here or there and maybe that's not actually the best solution for that region. So that's really um that's great research and hopefully that will translate into some policy and um actual change in what what these different, you know, states countries, whatever, how they um, how they plan out all of their renewable resources. That's exactly our hope, because uh, historically in the United States, generally the development of renewables has been a somewhat decentralized process where individual developers come in and uh, determine best sites for renewable generation. 
And we're really hoping to continue to push the envelope to think about it more as an energy system. We really want to think about where we want to site and how we want to design wind and solar principally, and also energy storage as well to not just provide uh, low cost energy for that specific site, but to actually work well within the context of the wider energy system that needs to be both efficient and low cost of energy, but also reliable and resilient to extreme events. So, so this is really where we want to push the wider energy system, given the wide scale changes that are coming with decarbonization. That's great. So to wrap up this excellent conversation, um, I have a final question for you that asking all of our podcast guests to answer. So what has captured your attention this week? And it can be anything. Well, I guess I'll be a bit boring because it's that's also right. energy related. Yeah, that's <laughs> but uh, <right. laughs> recent recent work from uh, from Ryan Weiser, who's at uh, uh, Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, uh, they just released their update on uh, interconnection queues uh, in the United States, which uh, the numbers are are really compelling. So, so I uh, encourage everyone to look up their recent report on the state of uh, the circumstances in 2022. And so uh, what they uh, found in their study is that the amount of energy on interconnection queues, which are essentially uh, weightless, where developers come in and they say, okay, we want to build this project eventually. And then they ask the what's called the regional transmission operator, the RTOs, to connect to the wider grid, to connect into the energy system. And uh, the amount of energy that's been on the queues has been increasing. And they found that that's actually for really two reasons. One is that renewables have have gotten so economically favorable that a lot of people are trying to develop them, which is fantastic from the energy grid decarbonization standpoint. They found that 2,000 gigawatts of renewables are currently on interconnection queues in the United States. And uh, uh, several multiples of the 30 gigawatt by 2030 target of offshore wind are actually also in the queue. So we have enough offshore wind energy in the queue to actually achieve the target of the Biden administration. But we need to continue to improve how we think about this again, as I was mentioning, in the wider energy grid context. So we need to uh, continue to push on our deployment of of these renewables in a a more thoughtful way. Right. Well, we'll definitely link that in the show notes so people can take a look at that work and um, along with the press release you mentioned earlier. So, um, well, thank you so much. This is this is so cool. I'm so excited to learn all of this from you and um, look forward to following along with your research and seeing what you and your team uh, put out in the future. So thanks for being here today. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Mike Howland. Offshore wind and really renewable energy in general has come a long way from its inception. And it's really due to researchers like Mike who can continue to push the envelope, make the technology as efficient and resilient as possible, and generate a lot of those megawatts of energy for use on shore. You'll find links from the discussion in the show notes, as well as a link back to the EBC website, ebcne.org. This is a new podcast on the scene. So if you can take a moment to like, rate, leave a comment, I think it's really helpful for others to know if it's a great podcast to listen to. And of course, our staff will be reading them all and trying to um, use your input as we put on more episodes. Join us next time. We're going to dive into passive sampling methods for PFAS with Matt Dunn at URI. Energy Environment Economy is a production of the Environmental Business Council of New England. Thank you to EBC Administrative Coordinator Stephanie Sukar for editing the episode and managing the branding and marketing. 
to events assistant Ashley Gray for her research and notes, and to EBC intern Anna Wilcox for her wordsmithing. Music is only forward by Roman Senec Music 2023.